following him, of knowing him, of pursuing him. And so let's keep that in mind as we think about the cost of discipleship. In the end, it is the gain of discipleship because we get Christ. So let's learn about this. Luke 14, starting in verse 25. I'll read the text out loud, and then we will all listen carefully to God's word. Starting in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned to them and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who have seen it begin to mock him, saying, this is the man who began to build but was not able to finish. Or what king? Going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is God's word. It is true. It's given to us in love, so let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. We love your word. Through the Bible, we believe that you are preaching Jesus to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so help me come as a servant first to your word, and then secondly, as a servant to these beloved people. And we pray all of this in light of what the great theologian Augustine said, thinking about the great demands that you're placing upon us as disciples. We pray, O Lord, command whatever that you will, but O Lord, give to us what you command. We pray this for the sake of Christ, amen. At Parkview Church, our goal, our mission, our vision, right, is to make whole disciples for the glory of God. And by whole, what we mean is the totality of a person, the fullness of maturity, every aspect of who we are, given to the Lord Jesus that we might become more like him, a whole disciple. In his legendary book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says it this way. Christ says to us, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work, and we might add from Luke 14, so much of your family. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or to crown it, or to stop it, but to take it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think are innocent, as well as the ones that you think are wicked. The whole outfit. The whole person. Jesus Christ is not the sort of Savior who is 
insecure and insufficient and only cares about a little tiny piece of your life on Sunday mornings or your private prayer life. Jesus Christ is the comprehensive Lord of all. And his intent with every single one of us, if we are just willing, is to transform every aspect of us in submission to his glory. He wants all of us, the whole of who we are. I've noticed one of the great tragedies of pastoral ministry, especially with young people, is seeing that freshman who comes in and initially, express, initially expresses deep passion for Jesus. Right off the bat, they're, they're all of a sudden excited. They've maybe rediscovered, wow, the Bible's exciting to read. And I love praying, and I love telling my friends about Jesus. That freshman is on fire for the Lord. But the tragedy of seeing that freshman turn into the senior year, blah, blah, dull, disinterested, half-participating senior, is one of the great tragedies. And something happens between freshman year and senior year, I've noticed as a pastor, where there's a distraction of loyalties that college life presses upon any young person. And I'm not even talking about the, we might say, kind of the bad parts of the college life and the party scene or whatever. That's maybe part of it. I'm talking about the many good things that a young person encounters in their life. And they start having this temptation of, yes, I want Jesus, but I also want a wonderful career in business or in politics. Or I want Jesus, but I also want that wonderful dating relationship. Or I want Jesus, but I also want this, and I want that, and I want that great social life. And what starts to happen, and not like these things are bad. They are good things, good things. But there becomes this distraction in the young person's heart where no longer is that initial passion for Christ remaining, but it's, it's Jesus plus something else as well. You want Jesus and a little bit of side of this or that. And, and I think if we're honest, I wonder how many of us here today have gone through that experience, where we have initially committed to Christ, and it's exciting at first, but over time, the passion and the zeal dies down. What once was a great hunger to know Christ and to make him known of those around you has instead turned into a distracting dullness of mixed motives, of distracting priorities, and a lack of that singular focus on the glory of Jesus Christ. We all fall into seasons where we decline spiritually. I know what it is like to go into the place of dullness, and a, basically a lack of usefulness for the Lord. What Jesus will call us to in the last image of salt, it is not useful. And so Jesus presses upon us through Luke 14 that we would become useful disciples to him. And to become useful disciples, we must count the cost. And the cost is this, is that whole disciples that we, are, we love Jesus, we are loyal to Jesus above and beyond anything else in life, no matter the cost. That's the whole point that Jesus wants to press upon us this morning, brothers and sisters, is that whole disciples, you and I are called to love Jesus, to be loyal to Jesus above and beyond anything else in life, no matter what that costs you. Now, in the context so far, Jesus has been telling us about the priority that he must be in the lives of those who commit to him. In the parable just before this one, people are invited to a great banquet 
But they all have excuses and they refuse to come because they are prioritizing certain good things, good things in their life that become the central focus of their heart's priorities. And Jesus then moves right into our passage and continues this theme of how easy it is for disciples to have those distracting loyalties. And instead, what he calls us back to is to love him, to be loyal to him and his purposes above everything else. So let's frame this whole passage in three ways, okay? Three points I want to look at together. And what you're going to notice is there's a logical flow that Jesus has for us in our text this morning, okay? First point is this. There are two arenas of costly discipleship. Two areas, two arenas of costly discipleship. The second point is that we must therefore count the cost of discipleship. Then the third point, for the purpose of being useful disciples. So the, the two arenas, verses 26 and 27, therefore making us count the cost of discipleship, verses 28 to 33. And all of this is for the purpose of being, therefore, useful disciples, verses 34 to 35. We're going to see this together, okay? First point, point number one, the two areas, the two arenas of costly discipleship to Christ. And the two arenas are this, relationships and your reputation. As the great theologian of the 20th century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, bids a man, he calls him to come and die. Jesus Christ calls every single one of us to die in the area of relationships and in our own reputation of ourselves. First, let's look at the relationships. The point is this, verse 26, is that we must love Christ, we must express a deeper loyalty to Jesus than any other human relationship, especially our family relationships. Look with me at verse 26. Jesus says something so stunning. If anyone, if anyone at Parkview comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's not possible. You can't have dual allegiance here. You cannot serve Jesus Christ and also family. With the same love. Jesus says, you must make a choice of where your main love will be. And if it's not Jesus above family, then you cannot be a disciple of Jesus. Now, these are very challenging words. I mean, just put your name in this verse. For example, if Wade comes after me and does not hate Mike and Julie, my parents, Claire and Haddon, wife, child, yes, even his own life, Wade Urig cannot be my disciple. Wow. Now, this is when it's important to interpret any specific passage in light of the fullness of what Scripture teaches us on this topic. Let's clarify, therefore, what Jesus is not saying. I mean, just think for a moment. Genesis 1 and God's invention and creation and blessing of marriage and family or Deuteronomy 6, or Exodus 20 that talk about the, the need for honoring father and mother, or throughout the Gospels, Jesus calling us to honor our parents, or even think of Jesus when he says in the two great commandments that we must love God and love neighbor. And guess who your most immediate neighbor most likely is? Your family. So what Jesus is not saying here is that we literally must hate our family members but only love him. Rather, what he is saying is in a dramatic way, and this is something at the heart of Christ, because this is something so dramatic, what he is calling us to as our primary allegiance of our hearts must be to him 
And to him, first and foremost, above and beyond any other person, any other relationship in your life. Loving Jesus so much that in comparison, it looks like hatred towards others. Now, what would that look like, practically? It would look like this. Some of us know exactly what Jesus is talking about because you have said yes to loving and following Jesus as his disciple, and you saying yes to Jesus has necessarily resulted in increased weirdness and shame and conflict and difficulty and even dishonor from your family members. Being a pastor of young people, I know of the, the young men and women who have said yes to Christ in college, but as they go back for Christmas break or for summer break, it has meant increased difficulty at home because mom and dad don't care a lick about Christianity or Jesus or that Bible nonsense. But for this young man or woman to devote themselves to Jesus, it has meant difficulty at home. And brother and sister, if that is you this morning, we praise God for you. We praise God for you that you have chosen to love Jesus Christ more than your family and that you've submitted yourself to the lordship and the kingship of Jesus, even if that has meant costliness in your family. The Lord Jesus is pleased with you. I hope you know that, brother and sister, as you languish in your family life in your faithfulness to Christ. And because of your faithfulness to Christ, things are not going well in your family. We are so thankful that you are showing us what it means to treasure and love Jesus more than family. And Jesus says, in reality, that happens. I think of the thousands or millions of brothers and sisters in predominantly countries that are led by people who hate Christianity, and think of the sacrifices that they make every, every day as they follow Jesus in the midst of families that are antagonistic to the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? But it means that, yes. But it also means loving Jesus more, we might say, more than maybe living in that kind of easy, kind of deceptive comfort of not having difficult conversations with family members. Some of us here need to have difficult conversations with our family members because we want to be faithful to the Lord Jesus. Maybe your son or daughter is participating in some sort of sin right now, and out of love and faithfulness to Jesus, you need to address that sin. Or maybe your spouse, there's some odd relational weirdness in your marriage right now. And the easy thing to do, is it not, is just to, at night, watch Netflix for three hours, then go to bed, then deal with the conflict. But because you are a disciple of Jesus Christ and you love him more than the approval of your spouse, you will raise the difficult conversation. Or with your kid, you will raise the difficult matter to talk with them about it. In prayer, in gentleness, in carefulness, of course, I'm not saying, therefore, be a jerk. That's not what Jesus is saying. Nowhere ever does Jesus call us to disrespect and act with unkindness towards those around us. But in kindness, gentleness, and respect, we raise a difficult matter in our family life because we care more about Jesus' vision for godly family life than comfort and deceptive ease. Does that make sense? Maybe that's not for you. Maybe for others of us, it is pulling aside a trusted family friend or a trusted friend from work or in your community group or a pastor 
like Doug Fern, whom we love, or Len Brooks, an elder, and we tell them, in all honesty, our family life is so chaotic right now, we are going to a million things for little Jimmy and all of his sports and all of his you know, requirements and commitments and all this stuff, and it's fun, it's all good stuff, and we're having fun. But we're missing church on a regular basis on Sunday mornings, and we're not part of a community group because of that, and I've not been as a father in Scripture for more than like three minutes this past month because we're just guns blazes craziness. And maybe what Jesus is calling you to, because you love Jesus, more than the busyness of American success family syndrome, you will pull aside a dear trusted friend and say, hey, can you look at my weekly schedule? Can you look at a month of how our family lives? We are going crazy right now, and I feel like it's hindering our love for Jesus. Could you just speak into it? That's all we're asking. Just take a step of opening your heart to be evaluated. Maybe there are ways that you need to tone down the commitments in so many things, choose a few good things so that you have space in your heart to grow, and your family has space in their time and in their hearts to grow in love for Christ. Again, Jesus calls us to hate our father, mother, wife, and children, but meaning in comparison to him, to love him more than everything else. No matter what it might look like for you, at its heart, loving Christ more than family means that every one of us, married but disappointed, or married but happy, or divorced and remarried, or divorced and filled with regret, or single and happy about it, or single and frustrated and discontent about it, or a happy childhood, or a traumatic childhood, no matter what family life looks like, our deepest loyalty is in Jesus Christ, meaning your primary sense of identity and comfort and worth is wrapped up in Jesus Christ and is who he is as your Lord, and not in how well or how terrible your family life is going right now. So what I hope you see right off the bat is when Jesus calls you something to die, and he calls you to sacrifice and costliness, I hope you see his heart behind it. Yes, it's a high demand. His heart is one of calling you towards freedom and joy. So that your heart is not wrapped up in this insecurities of how well or how poor your family life was or is going right now. But you can have the security of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and following him faithfully. That's the first area. Wow, that took longer than I expected. But here we are. Second area, reputation. I got to crank up the, vol- uh, the, the speed here, okay? Area number two, verse 27 is your public rep- reputation. Look at verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross, this is condition number two, family, now, reputation, relationship, reputation, bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, remember in the first century what a crucifixion was. A crucifixion in the first century was the Roman government publicly humiliating and shaming and what some scholars have proven actually literally annihilating the honor and personhood, what we today would call the self, of an individual. To be flayed on a Roman cross was the ending of your life. It was the degradation of your entire reputation. And so here's Jesus Christ calling us to crucifixion, calling us to bear the place where our public recognition 
no matter no longer matters more than everything else in life, where our personal honor and craving and lusting for public approval is no longer the passionate commitment of your heart, but rather following Jesus is. This is difficult for us because in our current 21st century American life, we love to cultivate the self, not crucify the self. On social media, what we see is that we must not only create a certain version of ourselves, but then we we hunger after outside affirmation of the self that we promote online. It's not enough for certain people to express themselves, whether in their sexuality or in their political ideas or in their opinions or whatever it is. It's not only expression, but there also is this need for affirmation, for validation, because one of the great sins of our time is not to validate and accept someone and how they express themselves. Self-promotion in our day and age is deeply tied to public acceptance, public recognition, but Jesus is saying that we need to put nails through the hands and feet of our lust for human approval and public recognition. And in fact, to follow him on the way of crucifixion and be willing to endure public shame even because we love Jesus Christ more than what other people think of us. Now, to clarify, public accolades and honor and even encouraging people and using their gifts, those are good things. They can be good things. Scripture encourages us to celebrate one another in our use of gifts. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when your personal reputation is the primary aim of your life, when being liked and being seen as successful is the animating core of how you live your life. Jesus says that has no place in discipleship to him. Real Christianity is the denial of self and the bearing of a cross where allegiance and worship is given to the true and living God and not to self. Practically, this could mean many different things. It would mean crucifying the fear of being known as a Christian at your work. Maybe some of you, in appropriate ways. I'm not saying be the crazy weirdo at work. I'm not saying that, okay? Jesus is not saying that, but... Certainly there are ways, I would assume, many of us could take a step forward in taking a risk and having our coworkers know that we're actually Christians. That what did we do this weekend? One of the things we did is we went to church because we loved the Lord Jesus. Instead of leaving that one out, we did this, this, and this, and then boop, and here's Monday, right? I know I've done that before. Or crucifying our unwillingness to serve the church because quote unquote, I haven't really found my gifting yet or how to really enjoy a place in serving. Right now, there are needs to serve kids ministry and so many things. And you know, most of us probably don't feel all that gifted in serving in that way. And that's okay. Because a faithful disciple is willing to sacrifice self for the good of another. And so maybe there's a way that we could, as faithful disciples, get involved. It means crucifying your time in serving others, it means crucifying our internal thoughts and emotions that seem to always revolve around how other people perceive us. Jesus says to put away all of that nonsense and instead from him receive the security of his gaze on our life that the approval of the Lord Jesus is the primary motivation for how we live our lives. That's what Christ calls us to in discipleship. Now, in all honesty, these two areas of loving Christ more than family, loving Christ more than a reputation, this probably rubs all of us in really tender areas. 
because family life is so important, as it should be. And our reputation, I mean, in the end, what, what kind of happens if you don't have a good reputation? It's, it's actually hard to live life. And so Jesus is calling us to really the highest forms of sacrifice that we could ever give, and that true disciples are willing to do that. And in this very high calling, then Jesus moves to the second point of therefore count the cost of our need to count the cost of real Christianity, of truly being followers of Jesus. And he gives us these two pictures, these two parables in verses 28 to 32. And I want you to notice the two levels of these parables. In picture one, parable number one, a man building a tower, right? Jesus says in verse 28, if a person plans to build a tower, do they not first sit down and count the cost, whether they have enough to complete it? And the second parable, the king Going out to encounter another king in war, will he not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able to win the war? He has 10,000, the other guy's got 20. Can he do it? The basic point is this. Realize, make it clear in your mind, Parkview Church, that following Jesus will cost you. It will be difficult, as that teenager told us. Working for Jesus is tiring. And what the Lord Jesus calls us to is to recognize that and to Think about that and get that clear in our mind. Becoming a Christian does not primarily mean ease and comfort, but sacrifice and risks are involved and suffering. And it is hard to keep enduring month after month and year after year, serving the Lord Jesus amidst temptations and hearts like ours, living in a world like ours. It is difficult and it's easy to throw on the towel. It is costly to be a Christian. And Jesus is saying, yes, exactly, so therefore count the cost. But there is a deeper level of meaning in these two parables, and I was really helped by scholar Alan J. Thompson to help me see this. Notice something. Think about it. The man cannot complete the tower because he does not have the financial or construction resources for the whole project, right? That's why in verses 29 to 30, the people looking on and seeing him think he's foolish. And then the king he cannot win the war because he doesn't have enough military resources to beat the person with 20,000. Thus, he waves the flag of surrender. And so in both pictures, they point to the foolishness of relying on one's own internal resources to complete something. So the basic argument that Jesus is making is actually very exciting. So think of this, right? In verse 26, he says, you need to love me more than every other person in your family. That will cost you. Verse 27, he says, love me more than your public rep reputation. That will cost you. And therefore, it is foolish, like the builder and the king, to think that a person, as they look at those two major costs of life, of living for Jesus, that a person thinks that they have the inner resources and strength within themselves to therefore make it as a Christian in light of the dramatic cost involved. And therefore, it's at this very point in this realization of our inability of who is sufficient for these things, Jesus, who is sufficient for loving him more than family, who is sufficient for treasuring him more than our own selfish reputation, is that we come to verse 33 and Jesus says, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. A true disciple renounces, in the Greek it actually means say goodbye, a true disciple says goodbye to all ownership and allegiance to anything in their life compared to Christ. A true disciple waves goodbye to any reliance 
on any resource within themselves to make it through the Christian life and cast themselves fully on the resources given to us through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's where this text drives us. And it's at this very point, Parkview Church, that we become useful Christians. Because haven't you noticed that the most useful Christians in your life, the godly 73-year-old saints who are living for the Lord, or the person that you say, wow, they just seem to be fruitful and this blessing from the Lord comes through their life and they are serving people and they're always just energetic in serving the Lord and useful to them. Haven't you noticed though the useful people are always the humble people? That when you talk with them, they talk about their inner insufficiency. When you talk with them, they talk about the sufficiency of Christ. They talk about, man, I'm struggling in this area. And they read a passage like Luke 14 and you know what those people would say? Man, Jesus, I feel like I need to love you more than my family. They go back again to being humbled because that's what happens when we encounter the demands of Christ, that we are humbled to the depths of who we are, who is sufficient to follow Jesus in such a way, and then we cast ourselves and we renounce all reliance on anything apart from Jesus Christ, leading us to the third point, useful discipleship. Being useful disciples, Jesus says, is like salt, that it is good But when it loses its taste, how can it be restored? Verse 35, it has no use. It has no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. You see, salt, right, is a stable compound. It must remain unmixed and pure in order to be useful for its original purpose. And so what Jesus wants us to hear at the very end of his teaching is that we must be disciples who have a purified, singular unmixed loyalty to our Lord Jesus Christ. We must have a single focus on knowing Christ and living for his glory. And that is so that we can be useful to him. That our lives can overflow with joy. That our lives can overflow with blessing to family and friends and church and our neighborhood. That our lives can brim with vitality as one author puts it, Parkview Church, don't you want to be a Christian brimful of vitality and usefulness to the Lord Jesus? When you signed up for Christianity, did anyone in here say, I want to sign up for Christianity, but I want the rest of my life to be a complete waste and a total loss? No one did. When you became an Christian, you fell in love with Jesus Christ, and you said, Jesus, I want to go all out for you. I want to live my whole life for you because I love you, and you are worth it. In Luke 14, the Lord Jesus is saying, come back to me in that way again. He is humbling us, and he is showing us our inner insufficiency, and so that we would throw ourselves on him again, so that we might be useful salt for the Lord and for this world. So then how can we become a flame again with passion for Christ? Some of us here feel so blah, blah, dull for Jesus. The way that you reignite a passion for Jesus Christ is by following him to crucifixion in Jerusalem. What do I mean by that? We're in Luke 14, and ever since Luke 19... Luke has been telling us that Jesus has been journeying towards Jerusalem. He has set his face toward the cross of crucifixion. 
And so think about what that means for you, Parkview disciple. It means that as Jesus Christ demands that you love him more than your family, think about who Jesus is. He has left the joys of his eternal family with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and he has come into this miserable world of brokenness and shame and suffering, and he has done all of that so that he can bring you as his disciple back to the eternal love of the Heavenly Father. Jesus demands of us that we would carry our cross, but think of Jesus who submitted himself to public humiliation and crucifixion on that Roman cross in the first century, and he did that bearing the wrath of God for our sin. He did that, why? So that you can be welcomed back and forgiven and given a whole new identity. There is no greater affirmation or respect than in the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Christ calls you to renounce everything, but don't you see that Jesus has first renounced everything, right? There's that silly song, maybe kids sing it, It's in different songs. It says, anything you can do, I can do better. Do you see what Luke 14 has shown us? It says this, Jesus is saying, anything that you must do, I have done first. Parkview Church, Jesus never demands anything of you as his disciple that he has not first already endured himself and therefore provides for you the resources that you need to live for him. Missionary and martyr Jim Elliott once said this, and this is where I will end. Because if you look at verse 26, Jesus says what? If anyone comes to me, he must hate his family. In verse 27, Jesus says, bear your cross, but come after me. In verse 33, he says, renounce everything to be my disciple. In the cost of discipleship, brothers and sisters, we actually have gain because we have Christ. For the sake of Christ, Paul says, I lose all things so that I might gain him Jim Elliott says it this way, he is no fool. He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. When you follow Jesus, you will lose everything. You will sacrifice. You must come and die. But don't you realize you gain the Lord Jesus Christ and following him is joy and gain and pleasure that is worth any sacrifice, Parkview Church. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the gain that we have in Jesus Christ. Yes, you call us to costly discipleship, to renounce everything, but the only way we can do that is by knowing that Jesus Christ, you have given up everything at that cross for us to love us and to buy us back to yourself. Thank you now for baptism, which gives us a picture of a full dying to self and a raising to new life in Christ. We love you, Jesus. Amen.